as has been said, we tremble at the thought that you would incline your ear to hear creatures of the dirt even dare to take your awesome name on our lips. But we know that because of the intercession of Christ, not only has our name come into your ears, but it has been pleasing to you that we have, we've called out to you. And so I pray, Lord, that you would meet with us here and teach us from your word. I say yes and amen to the requests that have been mentioned. Lord, build your church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible with you, still out, take it and open it up to Matthew chapter 24. Matthew 24. And when you find your place, if you will stand just one more time in honor of the reading of God's Word, my goal, I want to lay out just from the outset, my goal is not to do an exposition of what I'm about to read. In our church, we've been walking through Matthew's Gospel for several years, and this is where we've arrived, and we are, or my goal is to lay some of the groundwork for moving forward into Matthew chapter 24, the Olivet Discourse, what is considered to be one of the most difficult passages in all of the Scripture to interpret. So, um, this may be considered more of a topical sermon, but I do hope and and rest assure, assured that what I'm about to say is from the Scriptures. But I do want to read Matthew chapter 24, verses 3 and 4, just to set before your eyes and, and put into your minds what it is that we have in front of us. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 3, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately, saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. This is the Word of God. Let's pray one more time. Holy Father, perhaps it would be your will to show the weakness and the the impotence of men today as as servants all over the world will stand behind pulpits like this and try to open the Scriptures and and show that the words of men, the languages of man are not sufficient. My efforts at sermonizing are not sufficient. My skills in oration are not sufficient to do a single thing in the hearts of, of sinners. Perhaps it would be your will to make that known, to display it, that this is what it looks like when a mighty God uses weak and puny men to proclaim a mighty gospel. So, Lord, may, may your servant be forgotten as Christ is lifted up. Let us see just a little bit of the Lord Jesus today, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You may have a seat. So, as I've wrestled with this chapter over the past several weeks, and, and probably going on a month or more now, I have become increasingly convinced of a 
an interpretation that I believe does justice to what is written in this discourse and also what is written elsewhere in the Scriptures. You see, we can't just take a, a chapter of the Scriptures and, and make it mean what we want it to mean and not allow it to coincide with the rest of Scripture. And so that's what I've been trying to do. And I have become convinced. But in this study, I've also become increasingly burdened about some of the, the factors that are, or we might call them problems, within the Christian church that have given rise to so many different interpretations. As I've wrestled and as I've read and as I've listened, I wonder why is there so much disagreement on the Scriptures? And the problem is not because the Scriptures are not clear. The problem is obviously with us. And so we need to figure out what the problem is. And so I, I, I sort of grouped them into two categories. First, we all come to the Scriptures with some underlying presuppositions. I tried to clear up some of those a couple weeks ago. We, we also come with this uh, hermeneutical grid, almost like glasses that we wear when we read something from the Scriptures. And we read everything through that lens. For example, if you are a dispensationalist, then when you read the Scriptures, you're going to wear those glasses. Everything that you read is going to be read through that lens. If you hold to another form of pre-tribulationism, you're going to read through that lens. If you are a preterist, which means you believe everything in the Scriptures is already fulfilled, Jesus is not coming back, here we are in the, the final state of things. There will be no bodily return. That's obviously heresy. But if you believe that, then you're going to read that into Matthew 24 and 25 and every other passage of Scripture and so on and so forth. We all have these presuppositions. We come to the Scriptures with something. And there are certain ways of reading, especially the Olivet Discourse, that have to be immediately rejected if you hold to one of those presuppositions. In other words, for as an example, if I were a preterist, which I am not, but if I were, then I could not read in this chapter anything about the second coming of Christ or in this discourse because I would believe that's already happened. It can't mean that, I would say. That, it can't mean that. We all have these presuppositions and these things change the way we read the Bible. Secondly, the second main issue is that we all come to the Scriptures when we open our Bible. We come to it having been out in the world, having read the news, having spent all day staring at Facebook, reading, having conversations with the lost, even having conversations with those who profess to be Christians. And then we open our Bibles and we're just pessimistic about the state of things, about the state of the world. If we don't live in pessimism, at least we think pessimistically. We look at the world, we see what's going on outside of these walls, we see what's happening in the lives of friends and family members, we see that the state of things in the world just really isn't that great, and we, we bring that to the Scriptures. We begin to read like Elijah, moping and whining and assuming that we are the only Christians left on the planet. That everything God is doing, He has to do through this group because nobody else is, is right. And, and so these are our problems, presuppositions and pessimism. Now we just read these questions from the disciples in verse 3. And when we read these questions, it seems that the disciples also had presuppositions. They also had a grid through which they interpreted His words. We've covered this several times. The Jews 
of Jesus' day were generally pessimistic about the world, especially the Gentile world. And they assumed they were the center of God's universe. Everything that God's going to do, He's going to do through the Jews, and we're just waiting for the Messiah to, to come back and destroy all the Gentiles so that we can finally live in our utopian society. That's what they believed. And so, because of that, they have this pessimism about the world. When Christ says that judgment is about to come on Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 23, when He says... All these things will come upon this generation. They assume, well, if the temple's going to be destroyed and left desolate, that must be the end of the world. The world's going to end. I told you a couple weeks ago, we Gentiles have these same assumptions. We assume everything's about us. We assume that when we read language in the Scriptures that deals with judgment and God coming in judgment and destroying things, well, that must mean the second coming of Christ to destroy uh, or to remake the world, to destroy the present earth and, and renew. We have very little comprehension of the great and powerful ways that God has executed judgment in history. God has come in judgment many times, and we forget that. And so these disciples were the same way. They assume the temple in Jerusalem would be destroyed, and that would be the end of all things. And so they hear Jesus say, it's coming, and they say, well, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? And so Matthew is a Jew writing to Jewish people who would have thought the same thing, and he records this discourse in which a loving Savior speaks to clarify this confusion. That's what he's doing here, clarifying the confusion. Now, before we jump into the Olivet Discourse, I, have, I feel like I should come clean and I should be transparent about my own presuppositions, my own hermeneutical grid, my, the, the way that I read the Scriptures, the way that I look at the world. Now, this might seem disconnected from the Olivet Discourse, but I told you two weeks ago, what I want to do is, as a church body, I want us to all walk through this passage of Scripture, chapters 24 and 25, together. And if we're going to go through it together, then you need to know what I'm thinking when I start reading. And that's so I want to, I want to just sort of open that up for you. Just be honest and lay it out there. I would humbly submit to you, and I wouldn't have these presuppositions if I didn't think this were true, that this, that what I, my hermeneutic is what Christ's hermeneutic is. Now, that sounds arrogant, but if we don't have Christ's hermeneutic, then we're wrong. But I think this would have been the grid through which he spoke, and the, the grid through which we should read the Bible, and the grid through which we should read the Olivet Discourse. There are five things, five presuppositions that I have when I read the Scriptures because I think they're correct and biblical, I'm assuming or hoping that either after the service you'll tell me that I'm wrong and help me, or you'll say, that seems right. So here are five, five presuppositions that I have about the Scriptures. First, when we read the Bible, we must believe it to be Christological. That means Jesus Christ is at the center of everything. He, he's the point of the Scriptures. Christological. Secondly, we must read the Bible believing it to be, here's another bigger word, ecclesiological. In other words, ecclesiology is the study of the church. What I believe is that the church of Jesus Christ is the plan. 
Not plan B, not plan C, not plan A.5. It's the plan hidden in ages past. And so when we read the Bible, I keep that in my mind. The church is the plan. Thirdly, the Bible is eschatological. Eschatology is the study of the end. When I read the Bible, I'm under the assumption that God has always had the end in mind. He's always working towards an end goal. Fourthly, when we read the Bible, we must believe it to be covenantal. That is, again, the whole Bible is one singular revelatory unit with one theme. It's not divided. It's one book. It comes to us as one book. It is many books, but it is one book. It is one revelation from God. And fifthly, we must read the Bible believing it to be optimistic. In other words, the outlook of Scripture is not grim. It's glorious. I'm not sad when I read the Scriptures. I'm excited when I read the Scriptures. It's Christological, it's ecclesiological, it's eschatological, it's covenantal, and it's optimistic. Again, a lot of big words, and I'll explain in detail. My goal is to take each of these over the next five weeks and lay a groundwork for reading the Olivet Discourse. I promise I'm not stalling. I know I said last week I was stalling. Um, I'm not stalling now, but I think this is important. We've, we've covered some hermeneutical things in the past and how to read the Scriptures, and, and the men are studying on Saturday mornings how to read the Scriptures. This is right along with that. So, first, Christological. When I come to the Bible... And hopefully when you come to the Bible and you open it up and you begin to read, you understand that it is a Christological book. It's a book about Jesus. Now let me give you what I'm calling a general axiom, a statement of truth, and then I'll unpack that. What do I mean when I say the Bible is Christological? I'm saying that the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ is the primary substance, the end goal, and the supreme object of all that God has ever done in redemptive history, and He is the crowning jewel of all divine revelation. Now I'll say that again, because there's a lot of commas and it's long. The second person of the Trinity, the incarnate Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ is the primary substance, the end goal, and the supreme object of all that God has ever done in redemptive history, and He is the crowning jewel of all divine revelation. And now there are three parts to that that form this Christological lens. There is the person of Christ, there is the placement of Christ, and there's the presentation of Christ. And so when I come to the Scriptures and I open my Bible to read, whether it's here, whether it's privately, I'm assuming that what I'm about to read is in some form or fashion going to draw me to Christ's person, Christ's placement, and Christ's presentation. Number one, the person of Christ. The person of Christ. When I come to the Scriptures, when I read the Olivet Discourse, 
When I read the Sermon on the Mount, when I read Isaiah or Jeremiah or even Lamentations, I come under this first and most basic assumption. Whatever I read is meant to teach me about the unique person of Christ. And the Word of God is clear that Christ is eternally the second person of the Holy Trinity. There is only one God who has eternally existed in three distinct persons, all of whom share one singular divine essence, one nature. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are all eternally, equally, one God, not three, but one, and yet eternally three distinct persons. And Jesus Christ is the second person of the Holy Trinity, begotten of the Father in eternity. Colossians 1 and verse 15 says that He, speaking of Christ, is the image of the invisible God. We know that God is spirit. He does not have a body like man. You can't see Him. He has no physical essence whatsoever. He's not made of smoke or, or vapor or haze. He has no physical essence, but the Lord Jesus Christ is the visible image of that invisible God. When we see Christ by faith now, someday when we look at His face in person, we will be looking at the face of God. He's the image of the invisible God. In John 8, 58, Christ Himself would be so bold as to say, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Not I was, I am. And so you, you see they're speaking with authority. Not only does he imply his infinity, you notice the, the tense of the words, truly before Abraham was, I am. He's not limited by time and space, chronology or a sequence of moments like we are. Before Abraham was, I am. He applies to himself the divine name. Moses said, when I go to this people and, that, and they ask me, who sent me? Tell them, I am sent you. That's God's name, Yahweh. I am who I am. Jesus says before Abraham was, I am. And Hebrews 1.3 tells us that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And so we have these light bulbs here, and you can reach up there and you can touch that light bulb, but when you turn it on, the light comes down and illuminates the room. The light in this room is from these bulbs or some from that door. That's where it's coming from. It radiates in this room. Christ is the effulgence, the radiation of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. When we see Christ, we see God. We have to be clear about this. That's who we're talking about when we speak of Christ. When we read the Olivet Discourse, Christ says, Beware, there will be many false Christs who arise. We've got to make sure we have the right one if we can watch out for the, the wrong ones, the false Christs. John says in 1 John 4, Every spirit who does not confess Jesus is not from God. We have to have the biblical Christ. A lot of people believe in Christ. The 12 tribes, they talk about Christ or Yeshua all day long. They got the wrong Christ. Amen. They're wrong. We have to have the right one. So there is not a Christ who is not eternally God. There is no God who is not everlasting Christ. They're one. One God. Genesis, in the beginning, God. That was Christ. 
There is no God in the Psalms who is not Christ. There is no God in Nahum or Habakkuk who is not Christ. In the beginning God created. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. This is Jesus Christ, the eternal Word of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity. God's Word is also clear that this second person of the Holy Trinity, within the confines of human history, took upon Himself flesh and is, not was, is the incarnate Word of God. We continue to read in John chapter 1, the Word became flesh. The Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. God took to Himself flesh. Back to Colossians 1 again, in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. When men watched Christ walk across the sands of His land of Galilee, they were watching a man who, in whom all of the fullness of God was compacted in that man. It was pleased to dwell there. It delighted God to put all of the divine essence into the man, Jesus Christ. Philippians 2, 7 and 8 says that He emptied Himself by taking on the form of a servant. It was born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, He humbled Himself. There, again, speaking of the Lord Jesus, Paul traces out His willful humiliation, his position as the servant of the Lord, his, his birth from the womb of the virgin. And Paul very clearly sets out the incarnation of the second person of the Godhead. He is the second person of the Trinity, and he became a man. He took on flesh. He united to himself the nature of a man just like us. Jesus Christ right now is just as much man as we are, as if He were not God, and yet He is just as much God right now as if He were not man. And so when we read the Gospels, when we read the Olivet Discourse, and He says, Truly I say to you, or He says, My words will not pass away, He doesn't have to say, Thus saith the Lord. He says, My words shall not pass away. Because this is God speaking. We read about the humiliation of Golgotha. That's who we're reading about. We're reading about the second person of the Holy Trinity in human flesh, suffering the wrath of God for sinners. Scripture is also very clear that the second person of the Trinity, who humbled himself and took on the form of a servant who was despised by the world, rejected by his people, is currently the ruling and reigning king of all of all creation. He's exalted now. Back to Colossians 1. He's the firstborn of all creation, not the first to be born, the firstborn of all creation. Hebrews 1 says He's the heir of all things. As the only begotten Son of God, Christ holds the position as firstborn, as heir, as inheritor of all creation. And back to Philippians 2, Paul says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name. Therefore, in light of his sufferings, in light of his willingness to become obedient to the point of death on a cross, because he suffered and died, God raised him and exalted him Above all others, after making purifications for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty 
on high. He's seated right now in the place of supremacy as, as king. This is Christ. When I say Christ, that's who I'm talking about. Everlasting Lord of glory, humbled in human flesh, crucified, risen, reigning now. We need to understand this. He's king right now. Amen. He's king right now. This is what got the disciples arrested because they were going around saying, well, there's another king, Jesus. He's king now. We're not waiting on him to be king. He's king now. And so the Holy Spirit of God, whose duty it is to exalt Christ, that's his job. That's what the Holy Spirit does. He doesn't make you bark. He exalts Christ. He spoke through and carried along holy men whose job it was to speak and to write in such a way that when we read their writings, we are learning of the second person of the Holy Trinity, the incarnate Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, they don't all speak or write with the same emphasis. They don't all speak or use the same method. The method of the psalmist to explain Christ is not the same as the method of the, the other prophets. It's not the, the same method as John or Matthew. They don't even all speak with the same specificity. Esther doesn't even mention God, and yet it's about Christ. We have to understand that collectively, all of Scripture, it all finds its way like, like many streams pouring down a mountain and funneling into the unfathomable depths of the person of Christ. So... When we read the Scriptures, we look for the person of Christ. Secondly, then there's the placement of Christ. The placement of Christ. When you read the Bible, you can see that the, the Scripture talks about a lot of different things. It tells us about the world. It tells us about God. It tells us about ourselves. It tells us about salvation. It, it has history. It has narrative. It even talks about creation, flowers and animals and, and hail and sleet and snow and lightning. It talks about a lot of different stuff. So the question is, in this, what we might consider a long procession of truth within the Scriptures, what place does the Spirit give to Christ? What's His placement? Is He, is he second after the nation of Israel? Is He maybe third after Israel and the apostles? What place does the Spirit give to Christ? The answer is that the Spirit gives to Christ the first place. It's the place of prominence, of priority, the place of emphasis and ultimacy. He's first. Now, that might be sometimes confusing because that placement is not one of just a multitude of explicit references to Jesus. It's in the things that are said about Him. It's a placement of quality, not quantity. And so when I come to the Bible, I'm looking to see the placement of Christ in this vast catalog of revelation. The scripture reveals to us that Jesus Christ is the primary substance of all divine revelation. He's the primary substance. And what I mean by that is existence, and this is what Scripture teaches, existence, meaning, significance in the universe. This is what everybody wants to know. Why am I here? Why, why do I exist? What's my purpose? There is none apart from revelation and relation to Christ. Revelation from and, and relationship to Christ. All existence, all meaning, all significance are only found in Christ. You're either in Him as one of His, one of His sheep, or someday you will be trampled by His judgment. 
in relation to Christ. That's where you stand. Colossians 1, 16 and 17, again, by Him all things were created. We're speaking of Christ here. All things were created through Him. In Him all things hold together. All of creation finds its source of existence in the eternal Word. And all of creation finds its present existence in the sustaining Word. In Him all things hold together. We could also see 1 Corinthians 8, 6. For us there is one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, through whom we exist. Hebrews 1.3, He upholds the universe by the word of His power. It's all in Him, through Him, to Him, for Him. Now Colossians chapter 2 actually uses the word substance. It's more of a limited idea here, but he says these are the shadow or a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. It is more limited here, but think about in, the, in the, the, the argument of that letter to the Colossians, when he says these are a shadow, Paul's talking about all of the mosaic forms of worship, the mosaic institution, all of the ways in which God had up until that point revealed himself, all of it, all of the worship, all of it, the body, the reality, the, the meat in it was Christ. All of it was about him. Christ alone is the primary substance of all divine revelation up to Sinai, after Sinai, even now and into eternity. Christ is the primary substance. Nothing exists except that Christ created it. Nothing has meaning except that which comes through Christ. Nothing has existence or significance in the universe until we have learned how does it relate to Christ. That's the most important question. What are you going to do with Christ? When, you, when you're on your deathbed, it doesn't matter. No, nothing else matters. What's your relation to Christ? Is He your judge or is He your shepherd? He's the primary substance. He's the end goal. Scripture reveals Jesus Christ as the end goal of all divine revelation. It all leads to Him. It all finds its end terminal point in Christ. All things were created through Him and for Him. Colossians 1.16, for Him, for His glory, for His satisfaction, for His good pleasure. And Ephesians 1 says in verses 9 and 10 that God is making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, notice the language, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. All roads lead to Rome. All of the spokes lead to the hub. All of the hair goes back into the ponytail. All of divine revelation is gathered up in Christ. It all unites in Him. It's all about Him. The purpose of God in all things is to dead end at the glory and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. Scripture also reveals that Jesus Christ is the supreme object of divine revelation. Everything in Scripture gets its meaning and significance only in Christ and is leading to Christ, for Christ, so that at the end it will be seen Christ is all in all. He's the object. 
Colossians 1.18, that, here's the purpose, that in everything he might be preeminent. Not me, he. He might be preeminent. Ephesians 1.23 describes him as the one who fills all in all. All creation, all revelation, all of God's working, all of God's sustaining, all of God's efforts, it's all for Him. It's all to Him, through Him, of Him, in Him, by Him, because of Him, unto Him. It's all for Christ. He's at the head of the line. He's the primary substance, the end goal, and the supreme object of all divine revelation, and that's where His Father has placed Him. So there we see His placement. We understand His person. We see His placement and then thirdly, the presentation of Christ. The presentation of Christ. When I open my Bible, and when you open your Bible, I hope that you are opening it to see a presentation of Christ. He's the substance. He's the goal. He's the object of what? Of all divine revelation. That's the mode of presentation. All divine revelation presents to us Christ. Now, divine revelation comes to us in what we might call two books, the book of nature and the book of Scripture. We call that general revelation and special revelation. And so when I read the Bible and when you read the Bible, you need to read with that basic presupposition that even when the Scriptures speak regarding the book of nature, what it says is meant to reveal to us Christ in all of His glory. And what the Scriptures say regarding itself, or what the Scripture says regarding itself, is meant to set forth Christ. I'll give you some examples in case that's confusing. When the biblical authors include the book of nature as a means of making a point, even in that... The point is not nature. The point is not creature. The point is creator. It's pointing us to Christ. Turn, turn to Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is sort of the, the classic text that we go to to see both of those books laid open. The first part of the psalm about general revelation of the book of nature. And the latter part of the psalm about special revelation and what God has said in His Word. But think with me here. If I come to the Scriptures under the basic presupposition that this psalm is meant to teach me about Christ, do I have to wait until verse 7 to learn about Christ, or can I begin at verse 1? The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims His handiwork. And so when I look outside on a, on a cloudless day and I look into that vast blue sky, that sky that appears like it has no beginning and no end, that would just go on for all of eternity, that is, that is God proclaiming to me His glory, His handiwork, His power, His, His size. And yet Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so, yes, stars and galaxies and solar systems might preach the glory of God, but Jesus Christ is Himself the glory of God. They tell me about Him. They're pointing us to Him. You think that's big. Wait till you see Christ. Amen. Wait till you begin to understand His glory. Continuing, day to day, pours out speech. 
And night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes throughout all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Speech, words, knowledge, voice. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so I could say, well, yeah, creation's always preaching. It's always speaking to us about God, not audibly in our ears necessarily, but, but teaching us about God. And yet Christ is the Word of God. He's the Word that's being proclaimed by the steadfastness of day and night and day and night, a, a steadfastness that to us becomes so monotonous it's boring, and yet Christ is that faithful to us. In them, that is in the, in the heavens, in the skies, He has set a tent for the sun. He comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. Where in the world did God get the idea of a bridegroom? The sun comes out in the morning and it just bursts open in the sky. And the sky can't hold it back. It just makes its way. The sun shines like a bridegroom in the Jewish wedding on his wedding day, coming out from his chamber to go and to claim his bride, to go to her father's house and get her and bring her back with him. And Ephesians 5 says that Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Christ is the epitome, the, the, the ultimate bridegroom. He's coming for his bride just as sure as the sun shines. He will be here. The end of verse 5, like a strong man, still speaking of the sun, it rises or it, or it runs its course with joy. Strong man. A strong man. Now, we know when Jesus was talking about Satan, he said, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then he may indeed plunder his house. That's Matthew chapter 12. In other words, if you're going to go into a strong man's house and take his stuff, you're going to have to be stronger than the strong man. The one plundering the house of the strong man there is, is Christ. He's speaking of himself. And so just as the sun barrels through the open sky and it diffuses all of the darkness in its path, Christ, the one stronger than Satan, barrels into the souls of men and he diffuses all darkness. He plunders the goods. He takes them for himself. It's teaching us about Christ. Verse 6, the sun's rising is from the end of the heavens, its circuit to the end of them. There is nothing hidden from its heat. Nothing hidden from the heat of the sun. In Revelation 1, we learn that Christ's eyes are like a flame of fire. His face was shining like the sun in full strength. Hebrews 4, no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So the next time, when, in, in months ahead, when you stand out in the blistering hot sun and you begin to beat up with sweat, or you're driving into the, the west on the way home from work, and the sun is piercing into your eyes, and you can't look and you can't barely see it, just remember of the blinding holiness of Christ that will be far more blinding than that sunshine. In Matthew 6, Jesus himself says, Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all of his glory, was not arrayed like one of these. So look at the flower. You see the flower? 
King Solomon was not as splendid as that, and yet six chapters later he says, Behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Greater than Solomon. If a lily is more gloriously arrayed than King Solomon, yet Christ himself is greater than Solomon. And so we can conclude when I read that or when I walk outside and look at a flower, whatever it is that is captivating the botanists and leaving the biologist dumbfounded is nothing in comparison to the splendor of Christ, the beauty of Christ. We'll spend all of eternity dumbfounded in His presence, just trying to take in this majesty. The height and breadth, the rumblings and peelings of the heavens that shake the earth reveal to us glory. Lilies display splendor. The unfailing passing of days preaches to us faithfulness. The sun pierces the sky like a bridegroom and like a strong man, radiates with a heat that surpasses all heat, and yet Christ's love is higher, broader, deeper, wider. It surpasses knowledge than the sky. Christ is more mighty. Christ is more lovely. Christ is more faithful than day and night. Christ will someday pierce the sky as the bridegroom to whom all bridegrooms point. His face will shine like the sun, and He will leave nothing hidden in the hearts of men. He will expose every bit of it. Nothing will be hidden from His sight. See, what we have to learn, even when we're looking at the book of nature through the lens of Scripture, is that Jesus was first. The Son of God is eternal and everlasting. He came first. He's the one by whom, through whom, and to whom are all of these things. It's all for Him. Through Him, by Him. It's all patterned after Him, by Him, and for Him. As Paul would say, we fall short of the glory of God when we begin to worship the creature rather than the, than the Creator. We stop with the book of nature rather than following its fingers pointing us to Christ. It's seeing Christ. And then lastly, in special revelation, all, everything I've said, hopefully you can see I'm getting from the Scriptures. I'm sort of circular here from the Scriptures telling me about what the Scriptures tell me about. Scripture itself actually tells us that Christ is the substance and the goal and the object of Scripture. Several texts here that should be common to us. John 5, 39. Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it's they that speak of me. They're, they're, it's not just about eternal life, it's about me. They're telling you about me. And they're speaking to men who did not have a New Testament. In Luke 24, this is incredible, verses 44 to 47, then he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms, that would be a way a Jew would have said the Bible, must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures, still talking about the Old Testament Scriptures, and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Amen. In other words, He opened their minds to understand their Old Testament text, and He says, can't you see that the Old Testament said the Christ must suffer? The Old Testament said the gospel will be proclaimed to all of the nations, that a law would go forth from Zion? beginning from Jerusalem. It has to start there, but it's going to go out. It's going to spread. It was, it's been there the whole time, he's saying. 
He's the supreme object of all that God has ever done in redemptive history. He's the, the crowning jewel. John 5, 46, again, Jesus says, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Moses, what are you writing there? Oh, just a book about Christ. He wrote of him. Hebrews 1, 2, In these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. It's all about Christ. Both in general and special revelation, the book of nature and the book of Scripture, God has shouted one anthem the entire time. Look at my son. Look at him. He's the apex. He's the benchmark. He's the plumb line. Look at him. Worship him. Enjoy him. Treasure him. He's the beginning and the end. He's the first and the last. He's the alpha and the omega. Look at him. We see this even being sort of a Trinitarian goal. And when Jesus prayed in John 17, He says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify Your Son. The Son prays to the Father. Glorify the Son. Verse 5, Father, glorify Me in Your own presence with the glory that I had with You before the world began. In John 16, 14, Jesus, speaking of the Holy Spirit, said He will glorify Me. In other words, the Son prays for it. The Father, I'm assuming, answers His prayers. He does. The Father answers His prayers and the Spirit does the work. The entirety of the Godhead, the three persons of the Trinity, are working to get you to seek Christ in everything that you see. Everywhere you go, God is saying, look at Christ. So, hopefully you can see why we need to read the Bible with that presupposition. Second person of the Trinity, the incarnate Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ is the primary substance, the end goal and the supreme object of all that God has ever done in redemptive history, and He is the crowning jewel of all divine revelation. It's all about Him. Now, what does this have to do with the Olivet Discourse, very quickly? Well, the second person of the Trinity, the incarnate Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the primary substance, the end goal, and the primary object or the supreme object of the Olivet Discourse. He's the crowning jewel of the Olivet Discourse. When I read the Olivet Discourse, I'm reading with this grid in my mind. It's all about Him. It's meant to teach us about Him. It's meant to equip and prepare His men. It's for the good of His body. It's for the advance of His kingdom. The Olivet Discourse is profitable for reproof and rebuke and for correction and for training of the servants of God in righteousness. So, we're not the focus of the Olivet Discourse. Present day Gentiles sitting around twiddling their thumbs in every generation wondering what this chapter is about. It's not about us. It's not even about Israel, this historic and apostate nation. It's not about them. It's not about the present earth state of things. Every generation since Jesus ascended into the heavens has said, Jesus is coming back in our generation. Every one of them. We've only, you know, we've gotten more popular at writing books about it because we can make money, but every generation has said, He's coming back in our generation. And to an extent, it is good that we keep that, that imminence in our mind. He could come back, but that's not the focus. The focus is not when is Jesus coming back. And our eschatological views are not the focus. We don't come here trying to pull out the threads that might uh, you know, strengthen or encourage what we already have determined is the sequence of the events of the last days. We come to the Olivet Discourse to be taught, not to teach. 
We don't teach it what it needs to say. We let it teach us what we need to believe. Christ is the focus. Whatever our interpretation must be one that exalts Christ, the one that points us away from man. See, if we make it all about us, it's just pointing us to ourselves. We make it all about Israel, it's just pointing us to Israel. We make it all about the present earth state. We're just becoming obsessed with the earth. It's not about that. It's meant to point us away from ourselves, away from present circumstances, away from the earth, and focus our attention on Christ. He's talking about Himself. Now, that doesn't mean we're not going to learn something about ourselves, about Israel, about the end, the present state of things, what might take place in the future. That stuff might be in there. I'm going to leave you hanging on that. But we don't start there. We start with Christ. Gentle Savior, speaking to comfort His disciples. He's preparing them. He's equipping them. He's cautioning them. But He's giving them hope. He's giving them the information that when it is made effectual by the Holy Spirit will be a means of great solace and comfort to them because they're going to remember what He said. That's why He has to say, See, I've told you beforehand. When it all begins to happen, they're going to say, He told us this would happen. And we can say the same thing. I've got a, I've got a Bible here. I can look at the world and say, He told us this would happen. He's comforting them. He's doing the very same thing that He does in the Lord's Supper. When we come to the Lord's Supper, we read through the New Testament texts that deal with the Lord's Supper and teach us of the Lord's Supper. We are receiving divine revelation from the Scriptures to prepare us and to caution us, but mostly to give us hope. You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. You deserve to die. I deserve to die. The Lord's Supper says, Christ has died. Look at Him. The bread and the juice remind us of that. Christ has died. When the Spirit makes that truth effectual, He uses the supper as a means of grace to remind you, Christ has died. He's getting your attention. Remember, Christ has died. So what we'll do again is we'll take just uh, two minutes and consider the second person of the Trinity the incarnate Word of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Think on His humility, His servitude, His suffering, His broken body. Think of His blood dripping in the dirt of Golgotha. Think about that, and then we'll come to the Lord's table for our guests. It is our practice that we reserve the Lord's table for members, not because we're better than anybody. That's just how we do. Don't be, please don't be offended. Um, we've provided an entire meal if anybody wants to have food with us. But... This would be reserved for members only. So take the time and, and meditate upon Christ, and then we'll, we'll come to the Lord's Supper.